thanks for being here. You're welcome. It's so nice to see you. And you. I haven't seen you since BC, before COVID. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it's been at least that long. And you were just um, in, in the waiting area and Gary Pooney introduced you to a colleague of his as royalty. And that is why you're here, because you are legend in our industry. And uh, I'm so happy to have you here so that people can get to know you better. Um, people that don't have the privilege of working with you or might not end up um, sitting around a boardroom table strategizing with you or, or watching you, um, you know, tell a big shot developer how it really is. Um, we had a couple guests on the show recently who mentioned you by name and and uh, anyway, much anticipated guest. So happy to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. So um, tell me about uh, the very beginning. Um, you know, you're so... You are, I think I've said, and I hope it's not insulting, but I've called you the Mary Poppins of our industry. I think mostly because of your accent. That's because I take a brawly with me wherever I go. Yeah. <laughs> it's very practical this time of year. Um, and not just because of the accent though, because of um, your leadership of now younger people and just like from the old classic movie and, uh, and um, I guess I'll say, especially women. You know, uh, they look up to you so much uh, in an industry, I think, that was perhaps in some ways traditionally male dominated is now led by, you know, a, a growing and amazing number of strong women. Um, we've talked about that lots on the show. Um, and I think these are some of the listeners that are most excited. So where did it all start? It started in London, right? Yes, yeah. With, uh, in the movie industry. Uh, yes, I worked actually briefly in magazine publishing and then in the movie business for Columbia Pictures for the head of European production, who was a uh, cigar-smoking, typical movie man. Yeah, I can and, picture it. Yes, yeah. Uh, and um, accidentally, uh, was he was moving to Paris, and uh, I then uh, um, was introduced to his property development friend, uh, who was in a number of other businesses as well. And he was just looking for um, Miss Moneypenny. Um, and Perfect. so I was his Miss Moneypenny working from Which his means side. the solver of problems, the maker That's of it. things happening. Yeah. Yeah. Taking care of everything. Yeah. And uh, then um, from there, I suppose my, my sort of, although I was involved in the periphery in, in development uh, with his interests, it wasn't until I first came to Toronto that I really um, got into full-time uh, property development. And, uh, and what year was that? That would have been 75, 1975, the other century. 75? Yeah. I thought you were going to say 95. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. What uh, was happening in Toronto in 75? Not a lot, uh, but I was involved in the first uh, mixed-use uh, development, which had um, retail, uh, office, and residential. And the challenge was it was a leasehold residential, 99-year lease, which uh, in Toronto was fairly unheard of. Uh, there was only one other building that had been that way, and it was re rental. Um, so it, was, it wasn't going that well. And the I knew the developer, and he asked me if I'd like to sell. Uh, these are the days where there was zero training, zero introduction. You just arrived at the office, opened the door and said, can I help you? 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I learned at the School of Experience, shall we say. Yeah. And, and was involved with that development for a while. I ultimately became uh, development manager and, and um, VP uh, of the, the company. I guess it went well. My experience with leasehold and with the market understanding it has been that uh, a third of the market doesn't care. A third of it can be talked into it, you know, and a third of it is never going to be talked into it. Just That's on right. principle, they're just not going to buy yeah. it. Well, there was no other product uh, in, the, especially this, this was luxury yeah. at the time. It was yeah. in Yorkville area and uh, of Toronto, which is fairly prestigious and groovy. Uh, and uh, it was the only product also that you could buy to live in there at that time. Well, that's, that uh, helps. So it did. It did assist, but it was a quite a con, you know you had to do a lot of convincing. I, of course, thought, "What's the fuss?" Because I'm used to living in England, where leasehold is, you know, the norm in London. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't at all unusual to me. Um, you know what so else helps it is, um, you know, this this sort of old fashioned notion of uh, buying a house with a white picket fence and then paying it off over your lifetime or, or most of it and owning in it, owning it and retiring in it or whatever. This very old fashioned notion is, right. is long out the window. Yeah. And uh, the time frame of, of home ownership or especially condo is maybe five years. Yeah. So then does a 99 year lease yeah. matter? Is it a problem? Well, quite right, but not then. Yeah, um, it's very different And also time. it was above a bunch of shops. Well, who wants to live above a bunch of shops? That's Lots of people peculiar. now, but not back but then. But it was very peculiar. Yeah. So it was it was quite a big, uh, a big challenge, but um, I enjoyed it. It was yeah. fun. Yeah. And uh, I got to meet some very fascinating people, worked for very interesting people. And uh, from there, um, I was asked to join um, Cadillac Fairview at the time, who uh, had a high-rise residential group that was quite big. And uh, I was asked to go and be the marketing manager or whatever for, or drag, I can't remember what the title was. I'm not a title hunter. Yeah. So uh, I decided to do that because that was a segment of the market I really wanted to get into. And at the time, they had an enormous number of uh, projects that were in the US rather than than just uh, Toronto. And huge scale too. Yeah. So that must have been fun. It was. Um, but then they had a giant executive change of in the entire business where they decided to close the residential high-rise division. But that was also at a time when interest rates went to 20%, which was scary. Yeah. 80s. Uh, so we don't have much to complain about right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody that remembers the early 80s mm. feels the same way. It was a tidal wave of nausea. Yeah. Um, and and very, very uh, difficult. But um, the States was an interesting place to be because yeah. action was happening there. And also at the time, you know, Toronto was actually a quite sophisticated condominium market, whereas um, the US condominiums were suspect and not to, you know, people were not very interested in them. They all bought co-ops. Yeah. So I actually, I worked, my first project in New York was the second condominium ever in New York. Wow. Because they were all co-ops. Wow. Uh, so it was, it was again, an education process yeah. for the clients. Wow. And that's like some pretty interesting and large scale experience like quite fast you know yes. you must have still been quite young i i was yes yeah. um and uh in fact when i was made the vp at that 
previous development I first talked about, I think I was 25. Amazing. Yeah. So that was, was exciting. Yeah. And, um, and then from there I worked, uh, well, continuously really based in Toronto for, I was there for a total of 16 years and, um, most of my clients were in the U S because it just, my weekly route was, you know, uh, Boston, Washington, Chicago, New York. Wow. And that's, that's what I did. I'm one of the early aeroplane mileage people. <laughs> really? <laughs> the aeroplane comes out yeah. and then the first year you're yeah. gold or whatever, whatever. <laughs> that's funny. You must've been good at it. You're so tiny. It's like yeah. every seat is first class. Yeah. For you. <laughs> I'm so jealous I'm flying. Not vertically challenged. Oh. That is true. Flying is painful. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no, you're no winning. Yeah. You're crammed and I'm crammed in by the window. Yeah. And if I sit in the aisle, uh, my knee is smashed by that cart mm-hmm. or my shoulder sticks out too far and it's whacked abruptly yeah. just as I'm falling asleep. Wow. <laughs> First world problem, Cam. Oh, that was so dumb. I think that should be cut out. <laughs> um, so Miss Moneypenny, um, when, when did it, when did the show come to Vancouver? Uh, that happened, uh, in, well, the end of 1990, I actually moved in January 91 and I was headhunted by a a large development company here who was looking for VP of, uh, marketing. And, um, I thought maybe I'd come for a year because things, you know, in, in Toronto, things were really quite bad and had been bad for a bit. And that market didn't really recover for about seven years. Yeah. But Vancouver had had a bit of a setback, but not at all the same. And um, so the rest is history. I've now been here for 32 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Time flies. Yeah. You're so professional. You know, you don't say people's names. Like uh, I think it was Polygon. Was that the company? It was Polygon. <laughs> Everyone knows you worked for Polygon. <laughs> but I guess you, uh, you're just not a name dropper. You don't say the name unless uh, it's part adds to the story. If it's important. Certainly, but yeah. uh, but it's a good it was, start for was, somebody. It was a part. great. It was probably the best uh, opportunity in Canada at that time. Yeah, and I was very fortunate to be selected, and uh, it's a great company. I learned a lot. Polygon is a machine. Yeah, you know they do things a certain way, and they mm-hmm. do it extremely well. Yeah. They, you know, say they stay in their lane. Um, sounds diminishing in some way. And Not very, in the least. Yeah. It's, it's, it, know what you do best yeah. and do it. That's what I meant it. Yeah. I, I'm so fortunate because at one point many years ago in my career, actually I, I left the industry for 18 months and worked in another industry, which I loathed. And, uh, you don't want to say what that was? Was it porn? No, <laughs> <laughs> it was fashion actually. You and loathe fashion. I did. You look so nice. You got a beautiful scarf. No, no. It's you know what it was is as an industry, you know that you 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 look at different types of industries, as how people behave towards you and to their competitors and that kind of thing, and uh, you know by comparison with fashion, uh, uh, real estate is a prince's industry. Really, um, really, it was I'm interested. Very, in very uh, tough. I mean, listen, I had very good success. This was a working with one particular designer who, uh, at the time I got there was probably turning about 8 million wholesale. And you're head of sales or marketing or so both. both. Yeah. And, um, I, within a year and a half, I got them to 18 million. Wow. Um, in wholesale. Wow. Which is a lot of frocks. 
Yeah, <laughs> totally. So um, it was to launch them into the states. But the people uh, in the that. fashion industry, or I found it was it was was more difficult for me. It didn't suit me. Yeah, you know. So I'm what my point is is that I'm so lucky because um, if you've had the opportunity to leave something that you've done for quite a while and then do something else and find out, well, actually that's not for me. You then return to the industry uh, with renewed vigor, knowing that what this is, is what you do best. Yeah. And so I've never doubted, um, never thought would the grass be greener if I did this or that or the other thing. So it was, it was a wonderful lesson. Yeah. And some people might not get that. They might. I think work for might. decades in an industry always wondering is the grass greener yeah or in fact that they don't really love it anyway so why are they there yeah so uh, you know i am very very lucky that way and also i didn't lose traction yeah. because it was only 18 months and i still had your reputation mm, okay reputation and, and, network. And, and good network yeah lots of friends yeah networks are pretty important <laughs> totally I know you're playing the long game here. So anyone who's uh, as well respected as you and, and um, uh, has a reputation that you do, obviously cares about it, curates it carefully over, over a long period of time. Well, it's the one thing you have that's yours. Yeah. Anything else is everybody's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in our industry, um, for those listening that don't know, yeah. you are... A development consultant yeah. with um, deep expertise in sort of what the market wants, design, marketing and sales. At least that's my impression right. based on the work that we've done together in the past. Does that describe it accurately? I think that for most of my career, for the, uh, the longest time, that's what I did. But then what also um, two things developed. One um became my, my uh, proprietary sales training program, which I still do from time to time. And even though it was written quite some time ago, it's even more relevant today perhaps than it was yesterday. Uh, but the other thing is that when you start to have long-term relationships with your clients, companies change. Um, uh, children take over from their parents. You move on to the next generation, etc. And so... For the last 15 years of being in business, most of my business has been on positioning or repositioning um, companies that have been established for quite some time, and they need to move for the times. So that involves obviously complete rebranding exercises. The developer brand themselves. Yes. And also how they speak, how how they deal with people, the kind of people they hire that suit that new plan rather than the dead wood. Yeah. And so it's, that's, I found has been uh, incredibly good fun and very, very rewarding. Um, But I'm now mostly retired. So I'm really out of almost all games except sales training from time to time, or if an old client calls me with an assignment that interests me. Yeah. Or you've always been just willing to help a friend who asks nicely of course uh, of your time and and your thoughts on things i'm sure that's still happening that's still happening yes are you living here uh yes i what, are you living in vancouver yeah i am although i have a, a cottage over on, on an island nearby um don't that... want to say which one <laughs> <laughs> don't anyone creep it up in their boat yeah and um i probably spend three quarters of my time there yeah 
which I really love. Yeah. So I have, amazing. you know, 10 acres and can look out and not see anybody. And oh, that's except nice. Except the sky and the eagles and the ravens. Amazing. Yeah. Do I see anybody there by yourself? No, I'm often with friends. Nice. And um, I uh, share my life with someone, so we have a good time. That's nice. Yeah. I'd like to talk more about that if you want to. Um, let's talk about leadership. Yeah. Um, I feel aligned. We have uh, things I've heard you talk about in the past mm -hmm. uh, aligned with the way this company is run. Um, in particular, we have uh, three company values, two of which um, are passion and speed of trust. Um, and they're real because we talk about them every single day in the company. Um, in fact, just today we had uh, a talk with somebody um, because they were not living up to those two coincidentally of the three company values. And we, we established a performance improvement plan, um, because that's what makes it real. Um, and I know you believe strongly and you've said in the past, um, that it's so important to work in this industry, to be passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely true of, um, being successful in this company. And I think you would say in the industry, because if people are passionate about their work, they just do better work. Their work gives them energy. They don't appear to be faking it. Um, and it's it's real. And I think you've probably seen that time and time again. Yes. I mean, you've heard me say, if you have no passion, you have no place yeah, in the industry, in, right. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, because it's, uh, uh, you've got to get excited. And if you can't fall in love with what it is that you're helping to create or do, then you really shouldn't be there. Yeah. And, and move over. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm very particular about that. And, you know, sometimes uh, that has caused me to obviously have, uh, should we say, spirited discussions with my clients. <laughs> um, but uh, in the end, uh, truth wins out. It does. And, you know, you need to be authentic. Yeah. I have people have spirited discussions with me <laughs> and I bring it upon myself and to remind myself, I asked for it, that double-edged sword on your, over your left shoulder hangs on the wall uh -huh. because passion is a double-edged sword. That you is know, true. Yeah. It you, can get you into a lot of trouble. It can. And you have to, I have to remind myself that I want it. You yeah. know, it comes that second edge is uh, sometimes it seems, um, you know, when I'm, I'm feeling passion right in my face, sometimes I don't yeah. feel like it. It's, yeah. it. It can be a lot, but it's ultimately the best. It's best for the project and the results and everybody. Yeah. But you have to measure it when also dealing with your employees. And you have quite a number of people. I, I was uniquely fortunate in the sense that I have had a very private one-on-one -on -one business. Uh, and so I didn't have to worry about a host of, of um, temperamental employees yeah. um, who might not like my passionate um, statement that day. Yeah. So, uh, it, that can be challenging. It definitely. Our second value is called speed of trust, which mm -hmm. speaks trust. Everyone knows what that is, but the speed of trust is the high performance that comes in high trust environment mm -hmm. where, uh, nobody's wondering if someone's saying what they're saying to undermine them or put, make themselves look good or has any other objective other than the best interest of the team's objectives. Um, and the opposite is also true when speed, uh, when trust is low, uh, the trust tax comes in mm -hmm. and it's not about, and the trust tax is, is about double checking, wondering, doubting, all that type of stuff is very inefficient in terms of results. Uh, trust isn't about dishonesty that those are table stakes. It's about 
confidence that that person, that member of your team is getting their shit done. You know, it's, they're pulling their weight. They're, they're doing it. You don't need to wonder, doubt, or even double check. And no, do you want to micromanage? Don't want to micromanage. And required for that is creating a safe environment where people can be real honest when they don't know something, which is, I know is something you've always been. I'm, I'm, you know, it's, I I don't really have a lot of time for people who uh, make it up. And uh, it's totally okay to say, I don't know the answer. Um, in fact, it's quite powerful. You know, if, if, if you asked me something, I didn't know, I'd say, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Yeah. How important is it to you? But I would say that first, because I would want to understand, is this a, an A question or a Z? How high on the totem pole? Interesting. Is it that important? Because uh, if I asked you a question, for example... If I said to you, as, as a salesperson, do you allow dogs in the building? How would you answer that as a salesperson? Truthfully. Right? Yeah. What would you say? I would say whatever was actually allowed. The disclosure statement uh, may allow for dogs up to a certain size. It's at the discretion of the developer and how they set that up. I would share that information. So as you should, as an honest, trustworthy salesperson, but I would say to you as a salesperson, you should first say, that's an interesting question. Is that important to you? Because you don't know who you're dealing with. Because uh, you could be, or I could be the person that says to you, I absolutely hate dogs. I live next to three chihuahuas and a Pekingese and they bark all day. Yeah. And I want out. Okay. So I would temper my answer honestly, but differently. Or I might say to you, I've got two... 60 pound dogs and only one is going to be allowed so again you've got to answer it differently but mm. you've got to find out who you're talking to first it doesn't matter what you know yeah that is what they want yeah that's interesting I can, I can see how there is one true answer it can be said two different ways yeah. depending on who you're speaking to absolutely yeah uh, for example say dogs are allowed up to 40 pounds yeah. and you you've just found out the person uh had a terrible experience with their neighbor's Rottweiler mm-hmm. and you might just put that, that rule that's in the, in the uh, condo documents in the context of don't worry, there's no large dogs in this entire building. Right. Yeah. I get it. Um, many developers are told what they want to hear. You know, there's so much uh, in the part of the, in our industry, in our part of the industry, there's client management and, and you are famous for, again, in our speed of trust um, sort of theme. Um, that's not just an internal thing within our company, but we also build it as quickly as we can with our clients. And one way uh, that I just want to bring up to you is, is what you've done in the past a lot, which is telling them the truth, the truth about the project, the truth about the likelihood of its success or what's wrong with it um, with quite a lot of courage because it can be quite intimidating. And I think it's a lot of people listening are afraid to tell their bosses or their clients um, what they really think. Well, it's certainly something I built my reputation on. Um, That doesn't always make me popular, um, but uh, I do remember one client when uh, uh, they gave me a referral, they said to the prospective client, uh, you should definitely hire her. She's going to ask you or tell you to do things you don't want to do. Do it. So that to me is the best reference. I think the thing is, is that you have to have respect and courtesy for the people who have staked 
a great deal of their personal, private, public wealth, whatever it might be, in something enormous. And so it's often how you tell people rather than um, the, the, the just being some strident, outspoken individual. Yeah. I will never not tell my truth, but I would like, I hope, that I've been fairly respectful in how I've done it. Yeah. And some clients can take a little bit more truth than others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some, there's some pride. Of course there is, and why wouldn't there be? Yeah. And that's why, you know, you can't just go in and be a bossy boots and say, this is rubbish or whatever. It's, it's now, um, I'm concerned about this aspect uh, I think we need to look at it more carefully to ensure that you are successful. Why don't we just pick it apart and see what we can do to put it back together in a way that you're happy and I'm not concerned. You're very well-spoken. Thank you. Yeah, that, I've just, I think that I would just take that really well if it was me. I really would, put that way. Um, how do you know you're right when you're uh, raising concerns or, or you know, it, suggesting significant change on a project, which comes at frankly high risk? Um, well, how do you ever know? Uh, what I would say is what I've tried to do is do my due diligence, talk to um, perhaps other people I know who I think are no more than I do about certain aspects. You know, I'm thinking this, do you think I'm wrong? Um, that's why networks are important. This is not to reveal private secrets of clients, but but it's more about having a very trusted circle. Let's say of, of, I would encourage anybody, pick three people and make them your trusted advisors, whoever they might be. And I don't mean three, just three people within your circle who you know are going to tell you the truth. Who are yours? I mean, back. Ah, my the, secret cabal. Well, maybe <laughs> you don't have to say, I feel like you don't want to say, but if you would, I think it would be, it'd be nice. Well, I know they might change over time. No, they've never changed. Really? No. They are uh, three remarkable human beings who are incredibly smart, witty, brave, have done very good things. My heart's pounding. I'm so excited <laughs> to hear who this is. Shall we wait to the end? <laughs> no, I can't wait. <laughs> I won't be able to think of okay. anything else. Well, in no particular order, Kathy Grant, uh, Michael Ferreira, and Daryl Simpson. Wow. And we meet usually um, three times a year. Wow. Um and have a wonderful lunch. Sometimes they come over to my island in a little float plane and we have a whole afternoon of it. And um, we each, if we each have something that we want to talk about, then we are under the cone. Yeah. And it's, it's extreme secrecy. Trust, but also competency. Yeah. And God forbid, definitely humor. <laughs> and whiskey. Oh, some of that. Yes. <laughs> well, I know all those people and I, uh, I understand, um, why someone like you would choose people, choose to surround yourself with people like that, because I think highly of them. They're also just fundamentally good people, um, who are sharers. So they don't sort of hoard their intellectual brilliance. They share it. Yeah. And so, uh, that makes for good people to work with good people as leaders, good people to participate in things and who will always tell their truth. There could be more of that in our industry, I think. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, there can always be more in all industries, but. Um, yes, I, I think though, you know, at the pace that our industry has moved, 
most particularly, let's say, in the last 15 years, a lot of that has gone by the wayside in in the interests of expediency. Hurry up, quick, quick, make the decision. And so things aren't always thought through to the same degree. And because the market uh, up until recently has been extraordinary, there are an awful lot of people that have never worked in a tough market. So, of course, they've never had to equip themselves for more challenging times. Um, but uh, I'm, of course, old enough to have seen three major ditches um, of the entire industry. And, um, you know, and I'm, I, I'm saying major as opposed to little minor blips. And what's the word does the pandemic fit in? It hardly counts. Really? To me. Because it was short. Yes. And it was, we're all in it together. It doesn't matter what industry you were in. We're uh, all in it together. Unlike uh, 82. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. was like absolutely gobsmackingly horrible. Gary just told us about uh, his family home. His dad was a truck driver, very modest uh, family. And to protect their downside from, for, you know, from interest rates, the risk of interest rates going higher, they locked in their family home at 19.5%. Yeah. I thought I was brilliant when I got a 12.5% mortgage. I thought I was a total genius. Yeah. Yeah. Consider that now. Yeah. Makes me feel good about, you know, what, what we're paying nowadays yes. on, uh, on, on our property. Of course, though, that, you know, everything has changed because it, the, when we're in the sticker shock that we are, uh, because of interest rates, uh, and also frankly, just the cost of what it takes to build a home. Yeah. And, and, uh, what was it? An article you probably read too, just the other day about the steepest, uh, municipal charges in Canada or in Vancouver. Yeah. And that's got nothing to do with the price of eggs or anything else uh -huh. for, for a developer. Yeah. It's just, that's a hard cost. Yeah. Now, the reality to that math is the inflation uh, on the home values, right? Of course. You know, that home that was, that I mentioned at 19.5%, yeah. I don't know what it was worth, but it might've been $110,000. Yeah. $10, yeah. You know? Mine was like 200 and yeah. so I don't know, just sort of low 200s. Yeah. So very different. Yeah, sort of. But then you got to think about the annual incomes at that time. And, yeah. yeah. And I, I thought I was going to lose my house. Yeah. And I took a 50% pay cut as well. Yeah. Because the, it, the business I was working for at the time, um, uh, had a very tough time because of, uh, everything that was going on. Yeah. Here's the article you're referring to verifying what home builders have been saying for years, a new report from Canada Hor uh, right. Mortgage and Housing Corp. CMHC confirms that government costs and fees add tens of thousands of dollars to the price of a new home. It's high rise. It's some, isn't it something like $154,000 or some like ginormous number? Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, I looked at it and thought, good Lord. Yeah, Bo Jarvis was here the other day um, talking about an idea that's been percolating with him for years. You know how with the gas pump, they show you the breakdown of where your gas yes. dollar goes, yeah. that he's always wanted to do that. And they've done it in some variation now well, and then, but it's interesting. I don't think the home buying public knows. I don't think a lot of them know. And for those people, I think it would be actually very interesting education for people and that would be a good public service that yeah. Mr. Jarvis could undertake. Um, <laughs> I think he's no, working on it. I think it'd be great. I mean, what did somebody tell me this evening that the, the liquor control board are raising, uh, it's going to be, that scotch is going to be 7% more. 
Wow. April the 1st. So stock up. <laughs> <laughs> Could flip it. Oh, wow. Yeah, inflation is real. And it's very, uh, yeah. And, and of course, I still have uh, family and, and friends in England. And that is, uh, you know, very difficult right now. Very difficult. I mean, the heating costs are outrageous and really everything They're struggling yeah Ugh. mind you i was in the states a few weeks ago and i was astonished at the price of a steak just amazed yeah it's yeah. it's everywhere and it's yeah. everything yeah so why why retire i mean you're still spunky you look amazing like <laughs> okay. it doesn't seem like it's necessary you just well, i want am to. 70 for god's sake are you yes i am congratulations thank you I mean, I could have done the math from your stories and, and guessed, but thanks for sharing it because uh, I'm not afraid. I'm not an ageist either, and I think it's uh, inspiring. You know, Thank you. Uh, my dad is is uh, 77 now, getting on in years, fully retired, mm -hmm. and but there's lots of um, there's lots of people in their 70s that still sparkle. You're definitely one of them. Well, I still do, you know, the odd sales training um, program, and uh, I I think really uh, I'm. I want to enjoy my life, do what I want when I want. And so if something comes along that I find interesting and, and it's with an agreeable person, I, I'll definitely consider it. But really, I'm not set up um, now in the manner that I was. And I did work full tilt for a very long time. Yeah, I get that. And, you know, my father was dead before my age. So I don't want so to be you, like that. Yeah. He died at 66. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a number, right? When you live longer than your parent, do you feel borrowed time or, or at I least appreciate really, it? but I'm, I'm, I am more, more conscious yeah, more of conscious. the fact, yeah. but mind you, I have a mother who's 96 <laughs> and still very sparky. <laughs> yeah. I think it seems like you're leaning in that direction <laughs> in regards to sales training. Um, and you, you said earlier that your your proprietary method, mm -hmm. uh, your at least your proprietary training program, yeah. um, you know, you created it some time ago. And yes, it's, it's in some ways old and in some ways more relevant than ever. Yeah, tell me about that. Like, you know, people might assume that everything's changed in the world of of finding buyers for homes. Right. Um, in some ways, maybe it has. I do. I in mean, what ways has it? In which ways has it not? Well, of course, technology is yeah. the big thing. Don't yeah. forget when I started, it was totally analog. You know, you picked up the phone and made a phone call and you expected to speak to somebody uh -huh. and you wrote to them by snail mail because there was no email. I mean, it's unthinkable now. There were no mobile phones. So very different time. And you know, unfortunately, some of the time the developer's wife was the interior designer, which is not always a good thing. Um, but um, mostly my projects were pretty good, big, etc. But it was very analog. So technology is the big changer. Yeah. And in many respects, it's unbelievably positive and fantastic. Um, uh, uh, but it's also um, is more immediate. And in some respects, more transparent or more, I can't think of the word, a greater ability to manipulate the truth. Uh, Nowadays? Yes. How? Social media, uh, particularly. I mean, if you take a quote out of context, it becomes a quote. So you can make things sound yeah. quite different. You know, the fastest selling widget in the lower mainland. Is it the lower mainland or is it the southeast lower mainland or just 
a piece of the lower main. You know, there are many things you can do. But I, I, I mean, I am thrilled with the technology. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but it, you, you, um, you don't have when things are tough. You don't actually have the same. When I say ch- more challenging, higher interest rates, harder to make a sale, that type of thing. You often need somebody to come back a few times, particularly the more mature market. That part hasn't changed. You mean the older buyers? Yes. Yes, for sure. And so, um, you know, they, 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 these people and, and many others, they have a lot of concerns and they need to speak with a person. They don't just need to get an email. So they, you need to have more of a relationship, more of trust, more passion, more guts. Yeah. And so you're very successful at blowing out buildings and, you know, doing a fantastic job of that. But for the day-to-day product, it's not like that. And so I think that that what's not um, so good is that the lack of interpersonal communication. And so certainly in my program, I talk a lot about you've got to build your, your relationship with that person on your database. We all used to think that, you know, as long as you've got a big database, you're fine. Yeah. Well, that, that's rubbish. Because the database could be old as the hills. And yeah. nowadays it's half full of industry haters, people yes. that are just curious, wondering yeah. what their condo is Absolutely. worth, all this type of stuff. But as a friend of mine said to me the other day, all you need is someone with a really good phone and knowing how to use it. And you can build a giant database in no time at all. So it's very changed that way. Yeah. So I think we, we go back again to relationships, to trust, buying from a builder that you trust. Buying from a salesperson you like uh, and trust. And obviously your realtor can be very important to you uh, as a buyer and as a seller. You know, we've all had our experiences in buying and selling our own personal homes. And some of them have gone better than others. But, you know, it's you're depending on a relationship with people who you visibly see as a seller working hard for you. And as a buyer, same thing. You visibly see them working hard for you and that when you look at them, the lights are on in their eyes, not like, oh God, I wish she'd leave. That's so, true. So I'm, uh, I can't remember your question. What well, was I was <laughs> wondering about the the way that the sales uh, sales have changed right? and the way they haven't changed, and especially in the context of your training program. Well, they haven't changed because uh, you've got, a middle person, a salesperson, and and a realtor maybe, and you have and both of which have to be the, the, and the prospect and the prospect and the realtor have to be sold at the same time. There are some realtors who are less accomplished than others who don't do a great deal of due diligence and they're not serving their clients. So you've got to make sure that you don't make that realtor look bad for doing that, but educate them also at the same time. So it's two sales. Uh-huh. For one, yeah, um, and it's two different types of of dialogue. You know, you're going to say it's rather like the dog question. You're going to say something to somebody who does have a dog, and something something else to somebody who 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 doesn't have a dog. And um, uh, I I would say the big difference is thinking about who you're talking to, and not selling them, but teaching them how to buy. That's really more about what my program is about, teaching the buyer how to buy. I like that. Because they're the important ones. All you are is a facilitator. 
You might be a shrink as well and a marriage counselor and a bunch of other things, but it's not about you. It's about them. I like it. I said to a group at a group of, you know, two, 300 realtors at our launch event, our realtor event last week ah, for yes. our, our current launch, um, something related to that because there's a lot of fear and negativity in the market at this particular time. Of course. And uh, just reminded them that the people that are engaging with them, their clients that are engaging with them and, you know, considering this project uh, that they do want to buy, that's why they're doing it. Otherwise they wouldn't be talking to them at all. And to remember that and not get fixated on, on the negativity that is read about in the news or waiting for the bottom, which is never a good idea. Yeah. Um, and to focus on instead the positive and the, and the truth that this person wants to buy. So focus on helping them. And it's, it sounds aligned with your point of view in that way. Well, it is. And you know, one of the, the phrases I often talk to in my program is if you're, you're talking to a prospect is, is to say to them, for example, regarding financing, whether you elect to purchase from me or in this particular building or not, these are things you need to do. So let me help you do them. It's got nothing to take the sale away. Let them decide, okay, this is a person who actually genuinely wants to help me and, and, and help me arrange my financing. Yeah. I like it. I think partly, you know, just ego wise is because it resonates with how I've, I personally found success in sales in the industry. I wasn't uh, charming or charismatic or frankly powerful. Right. Um, but I focused on building trust a different way through um, product knowledge, um, knowing how to sell the appliances in, in the display home better than the person who sold it to the developer, right. building trust that way. Um, and when I didn't know something, uh, admitting it and following up and, and through being the most knowledgeable person that they interacted with as they were shopping around, I became therefore the most trusted. Yes. And that led to success for me personally. That's exactly and, right. Yeah. And good for you. And, uh, it's obviously worked for you and it's, you know, for people who've heeded that same concept, it works for them. And that doesn't get replaced by technology. I don't think so. No. Uh, you know, no matter how good your AI bot is. Yeah. Um, Everybody's trying to invent a platform on yeah. which people can view and buy the real estate. And then the, the developer of that platform can make a percent and they can mm -hmm. make billions of dollars. It's happening all over. Well, if you find one, let me know. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of, uh, I think we're a, wa a ways away from people just shopping uh, for real estate and buying it online. It's, without. I mean, we all know it's, it's the sort of, for most, the average person, it's the single biggest purchase you make. And yeah. you might now increasingly buy a car that way. Uh, but I think a lot of people, if it's brand new car, they're going to want to go and sit behind the steering wheel and drive one. I do. Just to make sure, because it's also a bucket load of money. Well, I do just because I want to be physically comfortable. Yeah. I'm a, like a giraffe, well, I don't you. fit in most cars yeah, you're, comfortably. You're going to hit your head on the top. Well, my my knees got to be in the right place yeah. and all that. I definitely would never buy a car. That's not true. I put a deposit on cars. You know, that that's are being fine. Built, but, but I'm not obligated. No, but but you would go and drive it. Yes, totally, totally. So your your sales training program it's it's very much on these fundamentals that frankly it's haven't basic, changed. Yeah. Basic stuff. Add on to. Uh, and you know why it's more important than ever is because that stuff is forgotten. You know, just, just today we were strategizing the success of a, of a, of a launch and you know, what really pisses me off is when 
not all the registrants in the database are called enough times or even once in some cases. That's unforgivable. Unforgivable. In hot markets, yeah. it's um, it happens, frankly. Well, yes, but I'm sure you know the statistic, and I don't remember it, but it was an astounding number. Elva Kim, who I think is quite extraordinarily gifted and a very good leader, when uh, she got her salespeople, I can't remember, it was, it was some astounding number that they, they made like 40,000 phone calls in order to sell a building incredibly quickly. And there was a tooth comb going through that database. She was relentless in ensuring that everybody did what they were supposed to do. And um, she also did it in a, a good way. You know, she inspired people because she's a genuine leader to do things because you need to do it right or you don't belong. Totally. Imagine the experience for a registrant in a database that was really interested, yeah. never even got a call mm -hmm. and then heard maybe that it sold out or they yeah. missed the opportunity. It'd be terrible. I would hate the salesperson. I would hate the developer and I would hate the sales organization. Yeah. And I would say, that's it. I'm certainly not buying from them. Yeah. Because, you know, again, it's disrespectful. It is another another analogy that isn't isn't mine. It was it was uh, Jason Crake, mm -hmm. one of the founders of I Mac. I remember him. Yeah, which became MLA. Um, he said in training salespeople, um, he talked about the money that's spent to put these names into the database, and that um, I don't know these are his words or I've changed over the years, but the way I explain it now is that imagine the developer spent about a hundred dollars in advertising to get that person to register in the database. It's a pretty common number or round number anyways. Uh, now imagine that in the database, half the people are neighbors, not interested. And of the other half, you know, they're not, they buy somewhere else or they're just, you know, it doesn't work out. So you're only going to get one in four people in that database into your presentation center to actually talk with you, which I can think is a pretty realistic number. Uh, now when that person walks through the door, imagine they've got, I mean, just look at them as they walk in. Imagine there's a, there's a big $400 sign, like a dollar sign and a four and two zeros floating above their head. That's what the developers paid to create this opportunity, this experience, this conversation that's about to happen between you and this person. It's a lot of money. I used to do that demonstration in a very simplistic way. Do you remember the old days when you had uh, filled out client cards manually? Yeah. Which I still prefer. <laughs> it's pretty convenient. You hold it, you take a couple notes. And you go with it, you go with it. Yeah. With the, with the prospect. Anyway. I used to pick up a client card, fill it in, and then hold it up, standing in the presentation center with the salespeople, and say, if you don't follow up with these people, and then I ripped up the client card, that one, each one of these is worth $1,000, because that's what it costs your client, the developer, to bring that person in the door. So if you want to flush $1,000 down the loo. Impactful. So pretty simplistic, but same idea. Yeah, same idea. It's important. You know, it's such an important part of uh, success. Well, it's one of the things that does go by the wayside with um, technology. Yeah. Because you, you, you're you letting it do things for you instead of you making it work for you. It's changing for realtors too. Mm. You know, there's, um, I, I, you know, to oversimplify it, there's, you know, I've seen in the pre-sale condo world two basic types of realtors, your classic realtors in the service business. They're market experts, they 
pick people up in their car, buy them coffee, drive them around, shop them around, high touch, sometimes help their kids get into the right school, sometimes picking people up from airports. It takes a lot of time and they do a great job. And then in 2005, I was uh, at a managing a project where I saw a realtor come in with one client and then not really leave, just kind of hung around. And then I saw him gain another client and another and another and another. And I, and he saw me eyeballing him and he said, are you okay with uh, what I'm doing here? I'm, and I said, I, I'm not okay with it, nor am I not okay. I'm just watching for now. We used to have a phrase to describe those people. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you to. Okay. <laughs> anyway, there's uh, I know it's probably negative because he was hanging around, but I was interested in what he was doing and he got up to about 12 deals and in, in getting to know him better and understanding why it was because although he was quite young, his father was very respected in their community. And so the people that recognized him uh, transferred the trust they had of his father to him and he went from being... Uh, a regular realtor to having this influence over the buyers, giving them a lot of confidence to go through with what they wanted to do, which was buying a condo with this project. And in training our my sales teams after that to, to uh, capitalize on this type of realtor and the kind of volume they could do instead of one deal, they can do 12, maybe they can do 20. Um, I looked at the entire world and thought, well, first thing I thought was, how do we get these type of realtors that can do these kind of volumes loyal to us and in promoting our projects and working with us. And I thought it was through service because they're very busy. Uh, they're very important. They feel they're very important. Their time is definitely money to the nth yeah. degree. Uh, I thought it was through service, you know, high service to them, making them feel like rock stars, making them look like rock stars and, and making their job very easy. And I looked at the whole world and said, who gets the highest level of service in the entire world and decided it was, these big shot gamblers, they go to Vegas and mm -hmm. Macau and get flown in on hotel jets and get the free penthouse and yeah. all this type of stuff. And they call them whales. Yeah. And so in training sales teams to, to give these types of realtors to identify them and give them the type of service that whales would get in Vegas, they, we started calling them whales. And so there's regular realtors and whales and it's been that way for, for many, many yeah. years now. And now back to technology, realtors are, there's this, I've wondered just recently, you know, that event I mentioned earlier, there I've never seen more cameras, you know, more people creating content at the event. And it's like every third agent in the room was doing it and narrating. And one person went live with 20,000 TikTok followers and all this kind of stuff. And I wondered if there's a, a new type of buyer's agent emerging, like, you know, basically imagine being a young person going into the realtor career mm -hmm. and focusing on creating content on, on being kind of famous on celebrity and bringing people you hardly know, but followers to a project based on your recommendation and your, or your access. I see that happening. I wonder how that's, how that's fitting in. If it's just another type of whale or, or where it fits. Well, I think it's, it's a whale influencer. Um, uh, you know, look at all the influencers that are out there and you look at the, the, you know, incredible triviality of their content and what some of it's about, but yet it is consumed by hundreds of thousands of people. I think the thing to remember is, yes, I think you've got a point. I think it'd be very interesting to see the first person who truly does that because they'll, they'll all jump in. However, it's a bigger price for you know can influence people from all over the world but are you going to influence them to buy a condo i think they're going to influence them to attend an event 
Oh, yes. Well, fine. I mean, I had a client in Dubai who opened the tallest building in the world. And every Russian oligarch and helicopter landings and, you know, swooping down and you had a special barcode invitation that you swiped and you got into a fake elevator that went nowhere and then bingo, the doors open and there you were at the top (laughs) of the building. It was Hollywood. Yeah. And that was many years ago. Um, So they talk about getting people to come to an event. They had masses of celebrities and high high rollers. Uh, so that has that I maybe mean, that was done twenty something years ago. Um, but uh, I think on on a uh, I, th- I think the thing just to remember is will it get somebody to part with quite a lot of money? It's easy to buy a little thing. It's easy to look at some stuff, and you can. I mean, haven't we all been to events where you you go there and you think there's not a single buyer in this room? They're just people here for the champagne and the MS scarf and a few other things. I've seen it. I've seen it before. Yeah, I've seen it more with uh, with realtor events where sometimes I really don't like to do this, but sometimes um, developers go overboard with catering or prizes to attract people to fill the room. And sometimes it's you know, worked very well for some. Yeah, if you have a few qualified and motivated people, there's still premium developers that I know that do this very well. Yeah. Even right now, um, you need to fill the room just to make the people who really do want to buy feel safe. Well, and we're headed for Lunar New Year, and everybody's out there with their wonderful promotions and parties and things, <laughs> and I'm sure we could all have a lovely time. Yeah, <laughs> never thought about it. Just attend all the real estate events and and maybe win a prize and have well, some free food. Need a new liver. Days on end. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my hell, actually. Uh, so what do you love about our industry and, and the changes in it now? And what are you glad to be uh, retiring from? Um, well, I, I think that the thing about and you've heard me say this before, but I think the thing about our industry is there's always something to learn. So it's always new. It's never just old. I love that too. And 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 so that I think is fascinating as an industry. And I'm already, you know, somewhat out of touch in comparison with where I, I was because a lot of things have changed since I dialed back. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm also, um, I am glad to be away from um, the kind of pressure that there was uh, about being right, being sure. Projects are huge and, now. Yes, and, and there's much more at stake. So much as I, in my day, was involved with some things that were like very big at the time, um, uh, they're, they're nothing in comparison with the stakes right now. Yeah. So it's far more risky. Um, and, and things can be a company breaker very easily if you're not careful as a developer yeah. uh, because they're so big. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to not be doing that. I'm glad to be living my life. I, I'm glad to see my real estate friends uh, and enjoy their company for just exactly who they are. That's nice. And I'm always glad to talk to people I know if they want a little sounding board. Um, but I'm not as in touch as I have been, so... I can't pretend to be such an expert. Yeah. But there's some things that you are an expert in that just haven't changed. We've talked about a few, but, um, you know, like going through a sales center, 
for mm-hmm. example, a display home yep. and, a, and a sales arena, the two major mm-hmm. parts of a sales center. Uh, nobody's better than you at, at, at making sure that the, the, the buyer experience, this pathing is excellent. Well, I, I'm a big believer in that, obviously. If they've spent all that money getting people to come to the door, uh, getting the space, building it, all the tenant improvements, blah, 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 the whole entire thing. Uh, and it's got to function. Uh, so I am, uh, you know, pathing in a way doesn't change unless you're introducing some technological thing in there that's new and different and exciting that, that people need to see. Um, and um, sometimes the sort of old fashioned notion of putting up dots, not that anybody does that anymore, is exciting. You know, I'll never forget I was involved with um, the Electra, which was the first office building in Canada that was converted to residential. And with a number of my friends, such as Sid Landolt and Hunter Milbourne and Peter Dupuis, et cetera. And uh, it was kind of exciting because we had 2,000 people outside the door when we were opening, the day we opened. It's like, holy crap, what do we do with all these people? So we feed them in. We, we get the cappuccino man and the hot dog person to come and make sure everybody's happy in the line. And then bring them up. And we had closing tables of 10 people at a time. But then we also had all the dots. You know, that's when you stuck dots on because there was no ability to get a board to light up. You mean the dots showing something sold? Like red dot, red dot, red dot, right? So one person was handling red dots. And it was a person for every different minute job. Yeah. And by um, two o'clock, there was a red dot on everything. But there was still hundreds of people outside. So I credit my friend Hunter Milbourne for this, actually. He said, let's have some fun. One by one, we peeled off all the red dots and we started writing backups. And in the end, we wrote, there were 248 or 246, I can't remember exactly, um, homes. And I think we wrote in excess of 400 in order to get the 200 and something to stick. There was rescission back then. Yeah. It was probably three days, not seven. Exactly. Yeah. But there was still rescission. Yeah. And it's nothing like getting the wind at your back. But it was the people were watching the stickers going up. Yeah, there's something to that. It was was exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I remember. Not very, you wouldn't consider it innovative now, but at the time it was... Yeah, You'd have sent everybody away. Yeah. At the time, most people would have sent everybody away. Said sorry. And then asked them to come back in a week's time yeah. when a whole bunch of people had fallen out. And it would have taken six months to sell. Yeah. Who are some of the developers in the industry that you admire, that you think are really doing a good job with their with their corporate branding and, and their product and reputation? Well, I have a big uh, a soft spot for Eric Carlson at Anthem. But of course, you know... Uh, Client privilege, I will say, I helped him with the rebranding, um, and uh, it's been very powerful for them. Um, I was lucky enough to be retained um, by uh, Bosa Properties um, as a consultant for 26 years. That was a great privilege. Um, lots of changes. They weren't that big when, when I started with them, oh. and it was a, a wonderful and exciting time. And they were they were very good to me um so i obviously that i still michael O'Dane um and neil crystal are good friends of mine at polygon 
and uh, from time to time I've been invited in to take a look at things. And uh, I, I admire their staying within their lane and how profitably and well they've done it. Um, Mosaic, I helped them in a way get started uh, in the very early days with their first projects. And I like the fact that they said, this is, this is our niche and we're going to do it really well. And they do. And they make very good money doing it. Sure do. Very dis- very Ex-polygoners, for yeah. those who don't know. Yeah. Very disciplined. Totally. Um, so I will miss out people in this. Of course. Uh, uh, process. I, I had a, a, a very good business relationship with British Pacific Properties just over there. Um, and uh, they still have a lot of property uh, to develop um, as a family and as a company. And... Um, I think if they can get to do their village, that would be very, very exciting for Vancouver, Cypress Village. Tell me about it. Uh, it's a new interpretation of an alpine village. Cool. And it's in West Vancouver. But they have many um, um, processes to go through in terms of approvals and that type of thing. But they've been extremely good at consulting with um, the local community and working with council and, and all the rest of it to try and ensure that they feed in all the things that people want. You know, I, I often say, you know, my job has been in a way to help develop something with a whole group of other people that gives the consumer everything they need and most of what they want for a price they can afford. And so uh, I think they're doing a very good job in their approvals process. Have you gone up to the pop-up that they have um, at the base of Cyprus. I have not. You should go. I will. It's wonderful. And it appeals to cyclists and outdoor people, people going up and down. Uh, it's just a temporary pop-up around on McGavin Field. It's it's terrific. Cool. I'll and in the it summer, it's the very best view of Vancouver you could ask for. That I know. You've been su- you're such a, a mentor and someone that people look up to uh, that work in the industry, including Kim Robertson in our office and Patty Glass, who's mm-hmm. on the show recently, um, and so many others. Uh, what advice do you have for people like them? You know, what why do you think uh, they look up to you, and why? What have you shared, you know, with with people like them over the years that maybe people should hear today? Well, some I've worked with, and some I haven't. But I think that, that for those I've worked with, I've tried to share my knowledge and I think they're glad of that. And so it's helped them and that's great. Um, they might do things differently, but still they take the, the knowledge. Uh, for, for some I have not worked with, but um, I think the biggest thing is, is uh, as you know, I always had this sort of tradition when I was working particularly hard, uh, where every two weeks I would either talk to somebody on the phone, write an email or have a cup of coffee with somebody who needs help. Everybody needs a door opener. And so the advice I would give to people who are younger and needing to grow is find your door opener. Find that person that you can talk to who will give you the time of day, but you better have your questions handy. You better be respectful of their time because they're busy people. And 
I, I mean, I, I remember Andrea Camp, who you probably know from, from Mosaic. Many years ago, I used to write a column at The Sun, uh, Vancouver Sun, and, and um, she read one of my columns and she emailed me and said, I am interested in, in, I don't work in the industry right now, but I'm interested in it. Would you meet me for a cup of coffee? Bang, done. Then she's in Mosaic. Yeah. <laughs> so if you ask nicely yeah. and you have your questions and you are, you are, again, Andrea was very careful not to take too much time. Um, and thus it has been for many of the other ones. Yeah, Kim Robertson did, did that too. She read your column, contacted you. You did meet her as well. wonder how many others there were over the years. Quite a lot. I, I, your children. I, yeah, my children. Yeah. I, I'm delighted and thrilled and I'm so uh, always pleased to see how well those people do, like Patty Glass, like, like Kim, like Andrea, like Elva, um, and um, many others who I, I think a great deal. And I would also say I do admire Goldie Alam. I don't know if you know her from, from Polygon. She's very smart, very good leader, and a great sharer. What's her role there? Um, senior VP of marketing. Cool. Yeah. And uh, steady. <laughs> steady? Steady. Sometimes you need a steady person yeah. who is going to not get into a conniption when the goalposts move. Yeah, I hear you. Mostly women. Uh, yes, but not not all. No, I not mean, all. I, I uh, there are other people who I lay on the railway track for who are men, um, some of whom have become presidents of companies and been very, very successful. Um, but uh, they, they, it's a different type of relationship. It's ju it's just as good. I mean, they I'm their mum. Yeah. So. Yeah. Who are uh, some of those? Just a few. Do you remember Don Forsgren from? Of course. Interpol? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Daryl Simpson. Yeah. Totally. Um, very early days for him. Um, he started. He started in in sales. He was before at, he was. He was at Fifth Avenue. Ah. Um, before my time. With Mark Benning. Yeah. In sales before he went to um, I, I think it was a mark. I'm, you know, I don't really remember. It was so. It may have been marketing. I think it was marketing. Okay. Um, very long time. No, it was long before he went to post. He went to Intracorp first. Ah. Oh. Um, and then, no, was it first? No, I can't remember. I just remember a certain. Uh, I don't want to speak out of turn because I can't actually. I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> You're so careful. I love it. You always have been. <laughs> Well, I don't want to get tripped up. You choose your words very carefully. Um, why did you leave Polygon? How do you leave such a great company like that and go out on your own? It was a great company, as I said, and I have every ounce of respect for them. I found, you remember, I had moved from being in Toronto, but working all over North America. And so in my role at Polygon, naturally, because that was their business model, um, we were focused principally on just the lower mainland and um, a sort of narrower product spectrum. And I found that for me, uh, I, I wanted more challenge um, with a difference of product, which I used to do a lot of. And so I was missing that. And the variety of locations, I felt I could do more uh, doing um, 
working in a variety of markets and a variety of locations. And um, I also uh, found, you know, culturally, as great as the company was, it wasn't necessarily that which suited me. And it's important to recognize, you know, when you're somewhere, I, I, I mean, I have several examples of people who are certainly shall be nameless, who were like not very good at, at a particular job at a, at a certain company and they leave and they go and work for this company over here and they're a shining star because the corporate culture and how the leadership works, it's not better, it's just different yes. and it suits that person. Better. And they might be different too. They may have yes. had an, a, a terrible experience and result over here, yes. learned, changed, adapted. Maybe, succeed. but I think it was more, it, it was really truly more about uh, the leadership within the new company recognizing this person should be channeled here. That's what we're going to do with them. Shove them in like a widget. Bang. They're a huge success. Yeah. You know, as I, 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 I've said to you before that, you know, you can, you can be a prime minister for wartime and be fantastic and a prime minister in peacetime and you're useless. So. Yeah. Interesting. It's real. Like I mentioned before, our company, our company values are real and they can be amazing for mm -hmm. people with whom they resonate or they can be a nightmare for people that are, are just pretending or just. Um, Michael O'Dane always used to use a good word, which was, is this person a good fit? Fit is the word. And it doesn't make them a bad person if they're not a good fit. They're just uh, not right fit totally. for, for, for you. Yeah. What do you think I could do better? God. I'm <laughs> putting you on the spot. You are. And I, and I want you to feel safe speaking your truth. Right. Uh, and if it's terrible, I'm just going to cut it out. Well, so don't even worry trust, about it. Just tell me, me what you really think. Um, you know, you and I haven't seen one another for quite a long time. And in that time, you've done a lot of different things. And um, one of them is learning to be a good father. And when you look at it, it's probably your greatest accomplishment. So... We're not going to talk about that side of things, but in terms of the company, I, I'm not in enough of the market to know what you do really, really well. I always think of you perhaps mistakenly as being a more gifted on the sales side than on the marketing side, but then you've got other people who are pushing that side forward, uh, because you're very good at thinking on your feet and, uh, knowing what to say. So I can't tell you that you're shit at anything, personally, because I don't really know. But if you we did think up. it, yeah, if you did <laughs> think it, would you tell me? Of course I would. I think you would. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't hesitate. Yeah. Um, but hopefully nicely. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you ripped on me pretty hard um, when I first started out on my own in the in the industry. Um, I did. You did. You, we, it was 2009 mm -hmm. and I had just worked with Ani on, uh, on a campaign that was really successful. It was, yes. Um, called Mac Bulk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and based on the success I'd seen with that program, it made more money than I'd ever made and had more success and sort of gained a reputation for myself. And, um, I saw, and this is a, this is in 2009 when, when Groupon hadn't even launched yet, but yep. I felt like there was, I'm a closet socialist. Mm -hmm. I, I actually am a socialist. It just doesn't work, which is why I'm a capitalist. I think if it worked, I'd be a socialist, but it just doesn't. Um, but I do love the little guy and I love the idea of bringing power to the little guy, to regular people. 
So I had thoughts around organizing demand, organizing the demand side of the equation, because that was what worked about the Macabulk campaign. Um, the story was that that um, we advertised, we assembled this this group of buyers, and there was no negotiating. It was pre-negotiated with uh, the developer this bulk deal on the condos, and it worked, you know, famously. I well. remember. Yeah. Um, and so the carryover of that was, you know, the power of the group, the power of the mob. And then condo mob was the name yeah. of my first team, my yeah. first real estate Ugh. team. <laughs> <laughs> Forget about <laughs> It's so funny how much you hate it. Condo mob. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it has domo in it, which is domicile, which is home. Yeah, and yeah, there's but so many, you're, yeah, you're, nothing. you're dredging the <laughs> I'm just being funny because I know yeah. how much you hated it and uh, it didn't last long, but um, I'm glad. Yeah, I feel myself blushing now. It's embarrassing. Well, we all um, probably have one of those um, in our lifetime. <laughs> it's you, okay to fail as long as you fail fast and yes, move on. And put it away. Yeah. And get up and go on. Totally. It does not define me and nobody should let it define them either. Mm -hmm. It's something, uh, sometimes we try different things and, and some things work out and some don't. That is so true. And over experience, you get a sense of what's going to work and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. I asked you earlier about how, you know, when you're right on these, you know, calling the shots or making recommendations mm -hmm. on big, important projects, right. which are make or break for a developer where the scale is huge. I found, I asked you if you, how you knew, and, and I knew the answer was that you never really know. And that's been my experience too. In fact, I don't believe there is one right answer that within a, a range, within a spectrum, a reasonable spectrum of, of strategic choices or directions, mm -hmm. there's there's a, there's a range, sometimes tight, where any of them are good and any of them are going to work. The success is really comes through through getting everyone in the room moving in one direction, getting everyone believing in the plan, get everyone aligned and communicating well and and just through good leadership. Any one of those strategies or directions can work. Would you agree? I totally agree. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I'm reminded of, you know, going back to the year dot when I was starting and and um, in the industry and doing budgets, and which I don't care for. And uh, I would always do uh, for a client uh, optimistic and pessimistic budget. So prepare for the best, plan for the worst. But you go in at the very beginning with the expectation of this could very easily work. There's no reason to suppose it won't, but there could be outside influences that could make a very big difference. And this is plan B. And so that there is, there is full transparency with the client and an expectation that's more realistic. I mean, I only, th this is just personal, but I think that when people are disappointed in other people, it's m often because they had an unrealistic expectation of that person. And, and so it's, it's not that there aren't silly people around or people who are wrong. It's, it's just often about expectation being managed. Same as you'd manage the buyer's expectation or the salespeople who can easily become downcast. Yeah. To there and the project's detriment too. Very much so. Then you get toxic shock syndrome going on on the sales floor. Oh, totally. Let's finish with your sales program. There's developers interesting uh, listening who may be interested. Um, how long, what's involved? How long does it last? If, if they were to contact you, how would they, how would they find you? Well, um, if it's something that, that interests them, uh, I have options which are, um, you know, a, a 
generally speaking, the full course is two days. That's it. There are course materials involved. There's some homework involved for the for the sales team. Um, is it two consecutive days? It's best if it is, but it doesn't have to be. It can be easily... Uh, I mean, I've had one client once who sort of divided it up into once a month for six months, a session each month. Um, the only thing that happens then is that sometimes you've got to like gear people up again to remind them of what they learned a month ago. Or there could be turnover, the team could even exactly, change. Exactly, and then it, they've somebody's missed out. So um, I've certainly done it where it's one Friday and then it's another Friday, the following week or two weeks later, and that's just fine. Um, and it's, you know, it's fairly structured. And as I said, there's a bit of homework. The homework is not complicated. It's work that uh, salespeople should frankly have, if they're good, immediately at hand. Um, but if not, they need about a week to go get the information. What information? To be able to... Competitive it, information. Oh, I see. You know, you've got to be able to speak and, and about your competitors. Yes. So, And I don't mean just phoning in. you got to go there. See it. Yeah. Look at it. Yeah. How do how do their doorknobs compare with yours? How how does a baseboard compare with yours? How do all these things compare yeah. with yours? To know what the nuances and differences are in your product, because you'll do some things, maybe on your project, that are better than the competitors, but you will do some things that maybe aren't as good. So if you're going to sell those things, you don't want to do anything that that in any way denigrates the competition. But you want to point out your pluses. Absolutely. You're going to need to do that if you've gone there and seen it. Especially if you've asked them and found out if it's important to them. Thank you. <laughs> I listen. I learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you have to teach is important. And I agree it's more important now than ever. Because uh, not just because of technology, but um, because of the long, hot market we've been in. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a whole class of uh, young salespeople who have um, not had to sell or find buyers in this way. And it would be uh, it would do them a huge benefit to yeah. have this fundamental training and then add to it whatever technology they want to use. Well, and I think that what could easily be added to that, as you suggest, is that some other speaker perhaps comes in and says, now, here's how our technological advantages can work using some of those thought concepts that we have in the traditional program. Yeah. So there's a marriage there that could take place that could be good. How do people find you? Uh, Diana. Yes, artemismarketing.net. Um, my, my is Diana at artemismarketing.net. That's the best way. Artemis, as in um, the Roman Diana. <laughs> or the Greek Artemis. The Greek God. Which is the god of... Goddess. Goddess. Get that right. Uh, gender neutral of gods, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Goddess of hunting. Goddess of hunting. And the moon. Cool. And the Ephesians. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you. For I enjoyed me. my time with you now yeah. and always. Thank you. I and enjoyed it too. I appreciate you and your leadership in the industry, the impact you've made on people I care about, um, and what a good example you've set for uh, so many people working in the industry that I love. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.